What makes a surf culture? There's differences in each type of area that really depend on the waves and the surfers and the boards that they ride. Santa Barbara really is an important link. If you want to look at the accomplishments of people before us and who we're working off of, in Santa Barbara, you're working off Yater. He's one of those original guys. One of the original dozen guys that, that stepped off to do that and created the surfboard industry. And then you see this guy on a little red kneeboard carve an arc, throwing spray back into the tube, then in the tube, it's like a spaceman had landed. It's that revolutionary. It's just like, whoa, what am I seeing? For the first time we saw vertical surfing, I just went, I'm gonna do that standing up. That's when the light kind of goes on about this green old guy, it's got something. He was a hell of an influence on me. I'd never really thought about surfing and turning back inside the barrel. People were experimenting and the creative bubble was just simmering and surfing was part of that. Of course, that's the way I developed the whole mystique of Channel Islands was on better surfers, high performance boards. The goodwill from this little town is spread all over the world. I mean, I think of Rennie, I think of George, I think of Elmeric, craftsmen, people with a deep love for surfing, people that have taken surfing on a different path. It's fine to take surfing seriously. The only wrong way to surf is if you think you're surfing the right way. We weren't in there with furrowed brows creating these scientific formulas. We were having fun. We were just trying to make it more fun. I didn't think that we really realized the magnitude of the whole thing. I don't see any slowing in the surf world. All I see is just like infinite potential right now. Spoons, A Santa Barbara Story, is the debut film of Southern California filmmaker Wyatt Daly. The film explores the history of California through the lens of a surfboard design, the spoon, how the design was built for the flawless winter walls of Rincon, the various people involved with surfing and then refining those designs, and how they're all related to the boards that we ride today. This all started as a small and humble project, but the end result reveals never-before-seen footage of everyone from Bob Simmons to Pat Curran to Phil Edwards, George Greeno, Al Merrick, and Tom Curran. Wyatt was able to get interviews with Bruce Brown, Tom Curran, Al Merrick, and of course the central figure to the design and really the mainstay through these last six decades, Rennie Yater. The film won Best Documentary Feature at the Florida Surf Film Festival in November 2019, which is where I first met Wyatt and the film's producer, Justin Mish. I'm actually on the jury for the film festival, so I'd watched the film prior, absolutely loved it, and was really kind of looking forward to meeting Wyatt and Justin. So we enjoyed the weekend together, and then we were able to connect over Zoom recently during quarantine to discuss Wyatt's backstory and how he was able to pull all of this off. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is my conversation with filmmaker Wyatt Daly and the story of Spoons. Enjoy. Congratulations 
on an amazing film. And I'm not saying that strictly because you're here. It is honestly uh, the most professional, maybe, surf documentary that I've seen in some time and the most successful as a documentary. So congrats. Wow, that's huge. That's a huge compliment. Thank you so much. Are, are there any reference points that you're using from a surf documentary world? Um, well, I was, you know, I, I think Bruce Brown is always a guiding light. So um, it, not necessarily Endless Summer, but On Any Sunday to me was really a masterful documentary that had a huge impact on how I kind of thought we could structure this film. That film in particular was great because he talks to so many, he talks about so many different subjects um, from, and he's got different individual characters and they kind of go through this whole world that is like motorcycle racing from flat track to just weekend riders or, you know, enduro or whatever. And um, yeah, I thought that was, if, if Bruce could do it, then, um, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of follow in those steps. I think that's a great reference. Um, what's your background in terms of education? Did you go to film school? I went to UC Santa Barbara um, and I, they have a, yeah, they have a film school there, but it's mostly a theory program. There's very few production resources, but I studied film and also English. I got a dual major there. Okay. And what about, um, what's your film background is how many films have you made and what's the catalog look like? Okay. So, um, there's been some student films, uh, none that are worth mentioning. This is my first real film attempt. This is my first feature film. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it's many years in the making. Well, yeah. Uh, when did you start it? First of all, let's back up. What was the original concept for the film? So I can answer both those questions. Um, it started back when I was still in school. Um, I was a senior at UC Santa Barbara and my roommate, um, is his name's Grayson Nance and his dad, uh, owns the beach house, which is the classic surf shop in Santa Barbara. So he came to me with an archive and this is how the project started. It was an archive for the Rincon classic, which is a locals only surf contest. And he asked if I could digitize it. And, um, I thought, all right, I'll, I can figure this out. I haven't done it before, but I got this box full of videotapes, slide film, photograph, like still photographs, and like old heat sheets from 1983 through 1996. Or no, sorry, 79 through 96. And as I dove into that archive, I kind of started my education. And the project originally began as uh, you know, a little documentary I had in mind about the Rincon Classic as a locals only surf contest and as a, um, as kind of like a cross section of all of this history in Santa Barbara, but it just kind of ballooned. Um, what, what was in the, the visuals, uh, in that box that he gave you, how much of the footage that's in the film came from that? I mean, I spent like over a year getting this stuff digitized. Uh, we have, I think, uh, eight seconds uh, that ended up being used from all oh of this archive. Uh, it was, I mean, it was mostly the videos was like literally public access television um, for the for the uh, the contest that people had taped um, from their VHS. 
and the classic you get the you know you have the commercial breaks with the local surf shop or the local beer sponsor um but yeah we ended up using like six seconds from uh tom curran in 1983 talking to michael thompson who is sean thompson's cousin and michael thompson is interviewing him on the beach at rincon and Tom is explaining that, you know, in Santa Barbara, you got a lot of great surfers, but no one really on an international level. And when I saw that, it was like, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it's kind of, you, you spend these many, many hours and you find a little gem like that. And it's like, no one's ever seen this before, or at least they haven't seen it since 1983. And, uh, you know, that's set the trajectory. And Michael Thompson wearing a gotcha shirt too, which was the inception of that company. Oh Yeah. So um, it's funny, I, I moved recently and purged a bunch of printed photographs. And then also I have tons of surf magazines that I've been meaning to purge, but I just can't stand to do it. And watching your film made me regret purging all my photographs. And it made me want to keep all the surf mags because these things that feel so like I haven't looked at them in years and they have no value to anybody. They're super cumbersome. And yet 20 and 30 years down the road, they're invaluable. Like you said, that eight minutes is worth its weight in gold, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's so much about these things like surf magazines or posters or, or you know, even concert tickets or whatever. Like it's the ephemera that's around it. So you can dig into a subject, but you get a context from what's happening when you look at this old text. And that's the kind of stuff that you can't really get when you, you know, get a excerpt from a surfer's journal article online which is great they, but but when you can ask a friend who happens to have all of the uh surfing magazines uh i'm talking to you kp um <laughs> and he can pull something out and go oh here's rennie yater on the first cover or the, i think it was the second cover of surfer magazine oh no he's on the first cover of surfer magazine and then you know here he is uh he had his second cover this was that he taken from his front porch at rincon and you can look through it and you can see what surfer was back then, how it was just, you know, Severson was putting together really basic outlines of like just pasting this stuff up and, and guys were making their own ads, you know, and, um, and that's the kind of stuff that you can't uh, really explain unless you get to feel it and touch it and hold it. And that's really what I was hoping to kind of convey when you watch the film. Back to the concept of the film. Um, for listeners who haven't seen it, it's called Spoons, obviously, a Santa Barbara story. And it's actually, there's no way to do a comprehensive history documentary about Santa Barbara because it's so complex and it would be a 30-hour documentary. But it is a very successful Santa Barbara story. And it's a really great little cross-section of the highlight moments. And the Spoon's title is it's told through kind of the lens of surfboard design, starting with uh, Greeno and Yater all the way through to Al Merrick and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's a very different concept than what started as the Rencon Classic. So kind of give me an understanding of your background, under knowing surfing, uh, going into this project. And, you know, what was the concept from that that point? Yeah. Um, I mean, to try to handle a few of those of those points. Um, we're super, we're super psyched that it came, that it's finally released. It's on iTunes, Vimeo, Google play, and YouTube. We just finished, we just dropped it in February. So, um, we're super psyched about that. And it was, uh, it was a process, um, 
for sure to get let's let's see my my background with it well it was an education for me like to um it was my personal education honestly um when we when we made the title uh, Santa Barbara story. I was really, in fact, like I, I really thought it was important that we called it a Santa Barbara story because it's not the Santa Barbara story, you know. And like yeah. you said, there's thirty uh, that you can you can make a thirty. You could do Ken Burns documentary on this thing, have it be ten right. part series, and people would still say you missed some things. Um, and you know, I kind of knew that going into it. Um, but that being said, it's like there were some tough decisions to make as we were coming through because as a research project, you know, there's this tendency to want to include it all and to be comprehensive. But I felt like by just being a Santa Barbara story, it kind of takes the weight out of it and says, look, it's just a story. Right. And, um, as such, it kind of, that allowed me to kind of freely explore it as a, um, as a research project and, and, um, Santa Barbara is a very insular culture and I kind of, I definitely recognize the, the importance and the weight of it, especially the more I, I waded into it, but it was really the friends of mine that were encouraging me to continue to learn about this subject and to continue to um, explore it. That made me feel like, you know, just let's follow this to see where it goes. So that was, um, that, that, that's a long way of saying Roger Nance um, and his son, Grayson, Grayson Nance is one of my best friends. Um, and then Kim Robinson, who's one of Roger's closest friends. And the more I could just, I just would hang out with them and they would kind of guide me in the right direction and say, why don't you talk to this guy? Have you thought about this? And this is why it was a multiple year process. I mean, from t 2012, you know, it went from shooting the Rincon Classic every winter to, you know, eventually moving back into Santa Barbara in 2017 and giving it everything I had to try and get it finished. So what I'm trying to say is I'm setting the stage for, um, I, I, as a surfer, I, I grew up between two um, completely different areas. And, um, and so this project was a, a way for me to learn. Um, I was born in Newport Beach, and uh, my my mother and father were divorced when I was really young, so I was moved into Danville in Northern California in East Bay, which is just a landlocked suburb, and um, really nobody would know anything about it except for Jeff Johnson also lived there, um, who he went to go be in 180 degrees south. Anyway, Danville and Newport Beach completely opposite, and when I'd split my time. I always kind of, you know, I learned to surf really young, but I always look forward all year long to summer and uh, to those holidays when I could go down and, and be with my dad and be at the beach and body surf at Wedge and, you know, go surf Point or 50, 56th Street or, or, you know, wherever we wanted to go. And I kind of thought that that's, that was it. Like, I, as a kid, you know, no one was teaching me anything else. I, I thought that that was what surfing was. So when I went to Santa Barbara for, for school, um, that's when I realized there's a whole other world out there. And I felt like I discovered it for myself. 
And when I began to learn more about the rich history that came from Santa Barbara, I was stunned that this information wasn't commonly not like commonly out there. Of course, in town, everybody knows it. Um, and it's, it's sacred, but outside of the, of that insular world, I felt that people would really benefit from understanding the rich heritage and culture that came from Santa Barbara and how that influenced the world. So that was kind of my driving uh, impetus. It was successful because honestly, it was an education for me. I've grown up kind of around surfing and I've worked in surfing for a long time now. And so I knew a lot of this information, but you created, uh, you know, a framework and a context and put it all together very concisely that it filled in a lot of gaps of my understanding. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples, um, illustrating kind of the bigger cultural context that was happening in the world that coincided with the surfboard revolution, right? So it's not just that boards are coming down in size, it's that there's also this hippie movement that predisposes the culture to even accept change. You know, like that was something that I just hadn't even, had it dawned on me before, even though I was well aware of those things happening simultaneously. I never thought that that greater cultural thing would have actually been part of the influence on uh, board design. And the other one that comes to mind is about Al Merrick kind of being a flashpoint for when a surfer shaper devoted his work towards ushering in the youth. Because certainly there were surfer and shapers who had businesses and they were selling boards sometimes to youth, but Al Merrick really geared it towards fostering a team of children. So the movie was really successful in, again, creating kind of a larger context for me to under, to put in some of just the information that I already had in my brain, you know? I mean, that's the part that was so exciting for me to kind of discover because we kept talking to these, you know, legendary figures, um, you know, Rennie Yater, Mark Andrini. Mark Andrini was a huge aspect of, of the creating of the film. He, he really helped kind of guide, um, guide it in many, many ways. And it was incredible to me that we could talk about something that there's been many generations of surfers, but the, the revolution really did happen in a year or two, I mean, it was a matter of years, but you're talking about a season in one area. And then how did these ideas just explode? And so you said it, you know, it was this broader cultural conversation with call it the hippie movement or the revolutionary movements that were kind of going on in the mid sixties. But I think from what I could kind of gather was uh, nobody was really that um, it was, there was a lot of free thinking just in general. And, yeah. and, and people were uh, excited and, um, and everybody was kind of riffing off each other in this like grand scheme of like some, you know, jazz music or whatever. And it's like, you, you think about um, these guys were innovating as they were traveling and the, there wasn't like the, like Wayne Lynch says it, you know, we weren't in there with furrowed brows creating these scientific formulas. We were just having fun and we were looking for ways to make it more fun. And it's funny to think about, you know, these, these pivotal moments in surfing that really came out of um, guys just staying on other, on their friends' couches, right? Like I'm going to come and, and go on a surf trip to Santa Barbara and stay on my friend's couch. And in the meantime, he's asking me, what are you making in Australia? What's this fin you've got going on? And they just share ideas that way. 
and um, yeah. and and that to me was really cool because it really speaks to the community that surfing is. Um, and then you also said something about Al Merrick and his uh, and how he his influence was really on making boards for young people. And I, and that was something that um, of course is really, really important and naming the film spoons and thinking, well, how are we going to go from Yader and Greeno and then pull in Al Merrick? I mean, we're, you know, nearly halfway through the film by the time we start talking about it after the shortboard revolution. But um, we're really talking about with Yader, you know, measured, um, refined progress over time. And then with Greeno, this radical innovation and what Merrick brought to it was this, um, mentorship that to me, the mentorship aspect really embodies what makes, um, Santa Barbara area. So special is this, like this willingness to share with, you know, the next generation in a way that is not overstated or overdone, but just say like, you know, um, here's how to, here's how to compose yourself, you know, and here's how, um, you know, to, to live your life in a, in a, in a good way. And I think from what everybody was talking about, that's what Al really did was he provided a place for young people to come together, um, with his barbecues and his, his spaghetti dinners and create this community of youth that, helped a lot of young people, but then also in turn just built this business that, I mean, he saw that was a huge opportunity in the market. And of course he, you know, that worked out really well. So. It's fascinating. I mean, that detail, Santa Barbara still feels that way. It's like a small town feel where uh, the village raises the kid, you know, it's not just in surfing. Santa Barbara feels that way at large. Um, two things that I was continually kind of stunned by in the film was number one, your access to these people. And number two, your footage that you got, it says right at the beginning of the film that much of what you're about to watch has never been seen until now. Um, where did you get all of this footage? So um, it, it was a, it was a long process and it was funny because really the film started, as I mentioned, it started as an archival project. And that was from the very beginning. And so it would be essentially like you're trying to create something out of nothing. And the access comes from, like I said, talking with Roger, talking with Kim. And I had an early interview with Rennie Yater in 2013. And I, I, this is so early in the film or in the process that I only asked him questions about uh, the Rincon classic and like shaping boards. And he said something about working with George Greeno. And I thought, okay, that's cool. But I didn't really know who George Greeno was at the time, or at least it wasn't the film I thought I was making. I revisited the footage and I said, Oh my God, like that's the story. And so from 2013 on, I didn't have another interview with Rennie until 2018. I mean, we were almost about ready to premiere, but you know, I had spoken to him. I mean, I was friendly with him on the phone. He's a kind of a standoffish kind of guy, not in a, not in a mean way. It's just that he stays to himself and, um, you know, but he was always really kind to me whenever I asked him questions. And so, so having Rennie as somebody who I could look to for guidance and I, who I knew would, you know, had at least lended, lent his time as a, to an interview. I talked to people and I said, I'm making this film. 
It features Renny Yader. Do you have anything you'd like to say about it? And people would, you know, realize that I was looking to make a film that wasn't about them. And that was the, that was the key. The access part was anyone who I, who I was trying to speak to, to have access to have in the film. I never asked them if I could have their time to talk about them. And if they were, if they were willing to share stories about other people, then they were happy to do it. And it went around and around like that. Similarly with the archive, it's like you get this box. I got this box, cut a little trailer, showed it to a couple people. They said, you should talk to this guy. He had a camera. Oh, why don't you, you know, reach out to this guy named Glenn Clark in Solvang. Um, he had a camera, you know, and here's this go up to see Glenn Clark. And he's got, you know, 13 hours of super eight footage that he took from 1969 through 1973 up at the ranch and at Santa Barbara. And, and he was just a, it was just, he did it. It was his own camera. It was his own thing, but he did it with intention. He was very deliberate with how he made his films. He ended up going off to Vietnam and lived a, you know, really interesting life, but he was, it was his warmth and kindness that said, Hey, you know, no one's ever said anything to me about this. You know, this is his life's work is essentially his childhood. He was like, uh, it was like 18 through 22, 23. And, um, and so we got the archive and as soon as we had archive, we would ask other people, you know, Hey, we're going to do a run of digitization. Would you, do you have anything you want to bring in? Cause it's cheaper by the bulk. And then it would be Don Balch in San Diego and Don Balch would say, Oh, I've got some great stuff. And Don shot for surfer and he had a little bit more of a professional career in, in shooting. And so then Don Balch has another category of people. Hey, have you talked to this person? And then it kind of grew until, um, somehow we had this, I mean, I know we could go into the long story of it, but we were eventually sitting in front of Bruce Brown and Bruce Brown was super open and just so kind and, and willing to share with us. And he gave us some footage. And so now we could cut something else that was new and show it to people. And they'd say, Oh, that's really neat. And if Bruce is on board, then, Oh man, you know, then there's Greg Hugland coming from Australia with never before seen stuff that he shot right out of Brooks photography school in 1973 with Al Merrick and the channel Island shop right there. Um, right. And, and, and then it, and then it kind of grew from that. And it's like, well, if you've talked to, if you've talked to Bruce and you've talked to Greg, then, um, Albie Falzon all of a sudden gives me a call and it's like, Hey, you should check a look at this, this footage I've got from when I was shooting in 19, you know, 72 with crystal Voyager. And that kind of evolved into conversation with David Elphick. And so I'm trying to get to the point of just, it just, it just started to blossom. Um, but it was just getting people excited about it. It's amazing. It's such, I love hearing that. Um, again, I was never not amazed by those things throughout the film because I've uh, uh, footage of that era, I feel like has been regurgitated over and over. And so I've seen the same few images over and over again. And from the beginning of the film, I'm seeing fresh stuff and I'm thinking, okay, well, you're going to use all your A clips up front, but throughout the entire film, there's just more and more and more. It's like this you unearthed a treasure trove um, uh, just for listeners so that they're aware footage of Bob Simmons, uh, Pat Curran at YMA in 1957. This is all footage of people surfing Al Merrick, Bob Cooper, Greeno, McTavish, Tom Curran, Kim Merrick, Hackman. In terms of people interviewed, you got Bruce Brown, Yader, Sean Thompson, McTavish, Lovelace, Andrini, Pizel, Wayne Lynch, Nat Young, Tom Curran, Al Merrick, Kim Merrick. The list just goes on and on and on. Um, 
in regard to footage collected, it's not just surf footage and B-roll footage. How did you license the Apocalypse Now footage? How did you get the footage of the Bank of America being set on fire during the riots in Santa Barbara? I spent, uh, uh, for the Bank of America footage, I spent a, a, a solid couple of days at the, uh, at the archives at UCSB. And I just, you know, called them and said, have you got anything, you know, what are your papers, like your newspapers from this time? They had microfilm and they also had old scrapbooks and cuttings. And then, um, and then I found some videos on the creative commons and yeah, that stuff is all, is all public access. That's creative. Okay. Com- that's creative Commons stuff. And as far as how were we able to do the, um, the, uh, apocalypse now, I mean, you know, John Milius was a huge fan of, of, uh, Yader. He wrote that line into the, into the film that Coppola then, you know, made and it made it all the way through. Um, it's kind of one of those funny little folklore that we knew we had to include. So when we, when we reached out, um, it took a long time. I mean, we kind of were thinking like, I don't know how this is going to work. And then, uh, we literally just called Well, we figured, we figured out who owned the movie and that was Coppola. And, uh, so that's, you know, his company is called American Zoetrope. So mm-hmm. we just called, we just called them. And after a couple of months of back and forth and like explaining who we were and how we, you know, had been doing this from a grassroots level and how we were just huge fans. Um, and that her budget was, uh, you know, really, really minuscule. And by that time, we had just gone through it all. Um, they said, yeah, well, you're free to have it, you know, as long as you can, you know, talk to, as long as Robert Redford's okay with it, as long as Bob's okay with it. Sorry. <laughs> as, long as, as long as Duvall's okay with it. Oh, okay. um, yeah, because he was, he's Kilgore, you know, Robert right. Duvall is Kilgore, Kilgore. So as long as, as long as Mr. Duvall's all right, and it's like, all right, great. And, and, uh, so we're off to the races. So they um, check with Duvall for you. No, we had to go through his, um, his agent and his agent's assistant was not very happy with us by the time we were done with this, because we were calling her probably, uh, at least once a week for about a month and then once a month for a couple of months. And then it was like, all right, sweet. We're good. Amazing. Yeah. And for yeah. listeners who don't remember the film, uh, not only does Duvall, say a line about getting his Yater spoon to go surfing. He's also wearing a Yater shirt prominently in the film. So um, you, who was responsible for interviewing all of those people? Oh, that was, that was me. You did a phenomenal job. Thank you very much. Dude, honestly, uh, everybody gave epic insights in the form of sound bites somehow. <laughs> it was like things that I knew, like points that they would ultimately be trying to make, or they just delivered them in one sentence. I'm like, did you interview once, write everything down, and then ask them to state it in this concise fashion? It was amazing. Oh but man, over, over and over again. That's huge, huge praise coming from your coming from you as an interviewer. Um, I mean, this was my first time. Like I said, my first film, so I learned on the fly. That's for sure. But I can say that. The only way I felt comf- comfortable in those se- settings was um, uh, prepara- preparation. Yeah. And um, I had my questions. I, I mean, I look back on I By the end of it, I got much more comfortable. But at the beginning, I had these these I had this binder. And then every question was on a single sheet. I made sure I didn't have to flip any pages. But 
the questions were all color coded by subject. And then I numbered them according to what number I thought would be good for the flow of conversation. And then, you know, I wouldn't feel too bad about asking a question, re-asking it later. And yeah, you know, as an interviewer, I definitely felt more comfortable as we went along. But I mean, that's just huge to huge to hear because I remember the first time we actually, when we actually um, got the, got the, the fine cut together and I was absolutely, um, I was bowled over. I was stunned. I was just, I felt this incredible sense of like, all of a sudden this thing exists that's outside of me in this film and the people are talking to me and I couldn't, I, I couldn't really, I, it was hard for me to wrap my head around because this thing was so obscure and amorphous for so long. And then all of a sudden it's like, it starts coming together and there's nothing better than that feeling for any filmmaker. But as my first film and with all these people that I look up to and admire and legends to see how they were willing to open up and, and um, share their experiences and they're talking to me, it was just like, uh, it, it, was, um, it was definitely a special thing. My experience with interviewing people has been that uh, some people are very easy to interview because they just want to talk and they're great communicators. Other people, it's like pulling teeth. Curran, Tom Curran is notoriously a bad interview and I've never interviewed him, but that's a well-known fact. Dude, the guy was putty in your hands. He opened up so much. Um, how did it go? And was it difficult? Did you have to ease him into it? Like, Oh man, Tom was so, so awesome. And he was so kind to let us in also. And that was one of the last interviews we got. You know, the film really hinges on it. And there was a version in my mind that's like, okay, we don't get Tom Curran. Like, what is that film going to look like? When it came out, like when we were able to go to his house, I could get into the stories, but maybe that'd be better for off, uh, off mic. Because it, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was a process to, to get Tom. I mean, it took it over a year and a half, literally over a year and a half from the first time I met him and I told him about the film until he finally decided to sit down and have a conversation. And that's fine, you know, but that's what it took. And um, getting to the point where we were having the interview, I was definitely nervous, but that was, like I said, pr I was felt pretty conf confident. And um, I actually really wanted to start that interview. I didn't want to start the interview the way we did. I, I actually wanted to start off talking about surfboards before we actually sat down. Cause I just kind of wanted to talk about something that was outside of, it was just, you know, surfboards or what he was, I was, that was the whole thing that that was like the crux of our interview is I wanted to talk to him about his boards and his designs and the things that he's been doing. And, um, we ended up because of our timing, switching it and doing a traditional interview style first, but yeah, it, it just, it just worked out. Um, I mean, I got to give all credit to my team. Um, I was there with my producer, Justin, Mish, who is exceptionally supportive and is always a calming presence. Um, he was also operating a camera. And then Scott Sowens was working our um, ACAM. And um, Scott is uh, a seasoned veteran. Um, he was working on the first film that I worked on with um, Keith Malloy. And that's when I first met him. So I had this, I felt like I, I had people better than me around me. And that I knew that all together, like we couldn't fail. And then from that point, it was like, you know, just try and keep it casual. And I'm really happy that the interview turned out as well as it did. Was Tom difficult to interview? Or um, to get to open up, I should say. 
I I don't know. I don't think that you know. It's I. It wasn't difficult, but even okay. the word difficult, I wouldn't even want to use because I, I try to think about these, these, this whole process was a matter of developing just a, a casual conversation, you know, and I felt like, um, of course it's Tom Kern, of course he's a legend. And of course, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uncertainty going into that, but once we're sitting there, it's just, you know, someone who's interested in surfing and who can share some of their experience. And I'm just a fan. And so anything he had to say, I was happy to hear. And, um, I, I just was really glad that, you know, we were, we were able to ask some of those tougher questions. You, you nailed it. Uh, and I agree with you. I'm a huge fan and I only want to hear more from Tom. I hang on every word, but I don't get to hear enough from him. That's the thing. And so this is like the most I've heard him talk in years. You know, if I compiled all the information I heard from him in years, it's less than what you got out of him in this film. Um, I'm curious just to get your personal thoughts on him riding the skimboard. Like I've been watching that from the internet going, dude, you're just hindering all of your talent. I don't get it at all. What are your thoughts? Because there's footage of him in the film working on the skimboard, which is named Super Dave, by the way, and adding foam to it and shaping the foam off of it and adding fins and all that. But what are your thoughts on him riding it? Did you see him ride it? Oh, yeah, I saw him ride it. I saw him take that board from um, Brand Fresh Skim and, you know, his whole process. He skimmed, he shaped half the thing in, in the middle of the night before his show in La Paloma in Encinitas. I mean, I... I think that what he's doing with skimboards is some of the most interesting innovation that's going on in surfing today. And I think it should not be undervalued because it's, uh, it's really, really, he's, it's not, I think that those types of boards are going to be essentially what turn into, um, our wave pool boards, you know, really hard rail boards that are flexible, but short and maneuverable. I mean, they're super hard to make them work in, in the, in the ocean, but the things that he's talking about with, um, rail profiles and the shortening of the board in com combination with the fin, like no one's pushing that envelope like he is. And so the fact that he's doing it, I think is extremely valuable and it's going to be one of those things. I really feel like he's the incarnation of Greeno, at least in this film, what we're talking about is how can you manage flex and a shorter board? I mean, that's what Tom's talking about. And um, and I think we'll look back on that time and go like, man, Tom has onto it like way before because everyone's just going, oh, that's just, that's weird. That's wacko. That's crazy. But I think it takes people with that radical innovation, that idea for radical innovation to like, to make that happen. And and I think that, um, that you know, as surfboards evolve and as wave pool surfing evolves, um, people who don't need so much volume, but are looking for more performance are going to look, are going to kind of boards are going to kind of go that direction. And they're going to look back on these early years and go, Oh wow. How funny they were riding ocean boards in the pool. Yeah. You know, and that'll trickle over too. Um, but, uh, I mean, I just think I, and, and, and also the cool thing about watching Tom ride those boards is, um, he's only doing it for himself. And, what should anybody who surfs like there's one message we're trying to convey in the film is that you surf for yourself. You know, you don't surf for other people and you get it from what you want. 
and how it makes yeah. you feel and the people that you can build around you. And, and so the fact that he's still finding ways to make himself, you know, have a good time and, and be excited by surfing. Um, I think that should always be commended and, and that he's, and that's what makes him Tom Kern is that he's not, he's not trying to redo what he did before. He's not trying to hang on to something else. Like he's completely pushing the envelope and a little bit of a side note. I think yeah. it should be mentioned that, um, if you look at the old boards that Tom was shaping, like, uh, or at least the boards that he was riding, like the like red beauty and black beauty, um, they've got hard rails all the way to the nose. All the way to the nose. I mean, he's all he talks about the reason why he likes a hard rail because it's responsive, uh, because it's more lively. Um, it's not like he just came up with this idea. It's been it's been throughout his whole career. And you know, people talk about that classic Tom Curran bottom turn where he just generates so much speed. I mean, there's gotta be something to it with having, you know, a hard rail like that that you can just dig in as far as you want. So yeah. With all that being said, I think that um, the work he's doing is super important and people will look back on it as being really pivotal. Um, that was everything that you just said was another kind of congealing of data points for me where I knew a green, I, you know, studied Greeno enough to know what he was up to back in the day. I've seen Tom riding the skim board but seeing it all kind of in one film congealed it all and made it a linear narrative that illustrates what you said is that Greeno experimenting on the front on the fringe wasn't necessarily a board that would be applicable for everybody else to ride, but you can scale back from the edge and have something that actually is progressive. And that's what I feel like Tom is doing with the skimboard. And he almost even said it in the film. He goes, we're using the skimboard just to test almost the boundaries to then ride this. And he shows the stringerless EPS board and like the sensations that we're creating in the skimboard, we're trying to translate over here. Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't ever go out and ride the skimboard, he doesn't know what those sensations are, you know? So I thought that that, again, it was like, oh man, I had all these data points in my brain. I just didn't realize how to connect them all. So the film does a great job of that. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I think it's funny that you in the in the history. I, I mean, it was. Um, I think it was again. It was, it was Keith who was telling me that, um, you know, the best surfer in the world is an eboarder, and that's the first time I heard about Greeno, and I couldn't really understand that. I, I couldn't really wrap my head around the idea. It's like I, I didn't really know there was a difference between eboarders and boogie boarders, and at the time, I had the uh, prejudice against boogie boarders, which completely unwarranted or unfounded but you know i was younger at that time and and that was like how can that be but yeah you it takes people to can step outside of what's what's cool or what's the norm and and think i want to try this i want to make something and and then just go ahead and make it and i mean i was ta I, I interviewed a, a guy named um um mike davis and um he's in australia but he's a santa barbara guy and he was saying that you know before he moved to australia he kind of thought every every town had its own george greeno because nobody was nobody in santa barbara was really paying much mind to george you know he was doing his own thing he was riding his own wave and everyone's kind of like okay that's interesting like he's you know that's cool but it really took george to go somewhere else and influence a new group of people for the ideas to take hold because he just was uh he was seen as the outsider. He, it, you know, he was accepted, 
but his ideas were too radical for people to really translate in his own hometown. Why wasn't Greeno interviewed in the film? Greeno didn't want to be interviewed in the film. Um, he, you know, to his credit, thought that, you know, the film should exist beyond him. And I got to meet him in 2017 and uh, ask him a couple of questions and have a nice chat with him. But, you know, it, to, I, I became to realize, like, it's good to preserve the myth. You know, it's cool to, uh, to talk about how he influenced so many people. Um, but just frankly, he, he, uh, he'd had experience with a film that he didn't like very much in the past. And so he kind of was turned off by the whole idea of being on film, which I can totally understand. And, and I respected from the very you know earliest stages. I, I actually didn't really think we would ever get George. Um, I would have taken it if he wanted to get on and talk then absolutely. But, you know, I thought that, um, there's enough story here beyond, you know, his own experience, but the, the, the people that he touched that um, makes a film. I mean, it would have been amazing. It would have been a boon for you to get him, but. Uh, well, he is, he is in the film surfing. Oh yeah. Tr there's tons of Greeno footage. It's worth watching the film just to watch the Greeno footage, I would say. Um, but yeah, it'd be great if you did get him, but at the same time, I don't know what the value for him would be. You know, he's not promoting anything. He's, he's living kind of a dream life and there's no reason for him to gauge, engage with any of us or surf media in general, you know? It's nice. It's nicer to have, uh, it's nice to kind of keep people, if people want to stay, you know, quiet and in the shadows, like they, they absolutely deserve that. And, um, but the work that they've, that, that he left is, you know, so valuable that, um, can't help but tell a story that includes some aspect, you know, but, um, but yeah, he, I, I told him about the film when we were making it, you know, we got his blessings. We, um, got footage. He, he, you know, allowed us to license some footage from him and, and he was, uh, he, he saw the film and he liked it. And last time we were in Australia, we got to go have another visit, got to go have another visit with him. And, um, it's funny. It's like, we just picked up right where we left off two years ago, you know? So, cool. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, those are the, those are the moments where it's like, man, that's the whole reason why we made this film. That's awesome. Uh, what was the concept behind the music and who did you employ? And I mean, it's, it's uh, seamless with the rest of the production and the aesthetic of the film. Okay. So the music um, I'd love to talk about because it was done by my good friend, Mike Coleman and his production studio in, um, in Tennessee, his, his, his music studio in Tennessee called four test creative. We actually just dropped the whole album, the original soundtrack on Spotify. So oh. you can find it if you just search for the film. But, um, but yeah, Mike, Mikey is a friend of mine since, uh, since middle school and wow. one of my best friends. And, you know, we grew up, he had a, a barn that we would, um, take, uh, we, we go up and, you know, everyone played music and we'd hang out and drink beers when we were, you know, it, have, we were just kids having a good time. And, um, but he was always so talented. I knew I, when I was thinking about making this film for so long, I knew I wanted Mikey to make some music and he brought together a really excellent group of musicians in Tennessee. And, um, and they started making music, uh, really early, really, really early. Like in 2017, when we were still doing the production on the film, he was having his team of like three, four, four or five musicians coming out and, um, 
and they gave us, I mean, it was just an incredible thing for any filmmaker to have original music to cut to. And so before, as we were starting to develop what the, how the pacing felt and what the story felt like, we had this music that was also evolving with us. And it was the first time they'd ever made music this way. You know, these were all talented musicians, but they hadn't put out an album. You know, they weren't necessarily in a touring band. These were kids that are looking to be professional working musicians and we're trying to gain experience just like we were um, as filmmakers. And, um, but, you know, super talented, really dedicated. And we got to the point where after we had a fine cut, we just kept giving them all these insane, cool, you know, uh, groups that they could like use for inspiration. I mean, we pulled from Pink Floyd. We pulled from Black Sabbath. Obviously, Sabbath actually is in the film. Um, we got some David Axelrod. Uh, we got some samba, uh, you know, some Latin samba. Um, we took, um, uh, what else am I missing? Um, we just had this incredibly eclectic, we yeah, got Bud Shank jazz, obviously that turned into a hip hop groove. Um, we had this incredible array of music and these guys just had a field day with it. And, um, the, one of the most gratifying times we made in the whole filmmaking process was going to Nashville for seven days and, and scoring the film and putting in, you know, full days and nights of work of just writing music together and watching these guys kind of grab on and take hold and, you know, capture the feeling that we were trying to convey was just so special. So we did 22 original tracks for the film and, um, and that was the guiding, that was the guiding light. I mean, that's what made it so special, but there were a couple of songs that, um, I had in mind from the very beginning that I really wanted to see come through. And that was the song bees by caribou that I just really loved that whole feeling of it. That turned out to be our final, um, culmination, like explosion felt like segment surf segment. We also had, uh, Maryland by Mount Kimby, um, which when I heard the song originally, like wasn't very well known and Mount Kimby was small. And then in the course of making the film, it got like massive. Um, but that turned out to be the Tom Curran section and that couldn't have been, that couldn't have come up better. And then, um, black Sabbath, which is the song with sleeping village or warning. It's like a 10 minute long jam song from 1969. I found it. I never heard of that song before. And, um, I was so fired up to like get a segment of it. And that was great because it ended up being like two or three music cues, like actual beat, like elements. But because it came from a 10 minute song from a producing standpoint, it cost the same. And, um, that was a great one because, um, I like to think, Oh, Sharon Osbourne signed off on it. Right. She gave us the rights to use it. And once, you know, I, I just like to think that, that she's like, oh, they picked this song because it's not like it's, you know, it's not paranoid. It's not Iron Man. Um, and it was really easy to get that signed. So that was kind of like the first step to getting the other two. That's and we, amazing. of course, I mean, we, of course, had to pay them. But yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the graphics as well. Who is responsible for the concept of the graphics and the execution, both of which were phenomenal, like conceptually it tied together elements uh really beautifully but the aesthetic of the graphics too it like was genius the graphics were some something that um 
was like a pipe dream for me because I don't know how to do graphics and we had, our budget was so slim that, um, I, I, we, I just didn't think we'd ever be able to do it. Right. I was always trying to do it filmically. And basically what we're talking about is discussing what the Vieter spoon is or what the Greeno spoon is. And I kept showing the film because the film was meant to be accessible, um, to non-surfers and, um, we kept showing it and people would be like, okay, it's great. I get it. But like, I want to see some like schematics, like I want to see some graphics. So I'm super fortunate again to find a young, talented graphic designer and artist named Mao Dominguez. And um, he's a surfer in Encinitas and he's a friend of, of our editor, Dana. Um, he was willing to, to basically do whatever it took to, to get these things done and and he made it come through and it just gives the film a polish and makes you feel like you're being taken care of so um yeah we're really happy with how those came out for sure i am too and again um it was actually actually okay so i was just mentioning the graphics but i wanted to also mention that our graphic designer was dj javier in santa barbara and um, DJ has started to get a bit of a, a cult following, especially I'd call it an underground following, but he's kind of coming above ground. Like he's blowing up and um, he's the one who did our logo. He helped us with the text treatments and he kind of s- helped with our original like one sheet that we still use. And um, yeah, so DJ uh, is one of those great stories where he just reached out to me on Instagram and said, Hey, do you guys need any graphic design work? And it couldn't have been better. I mean, he's a local Santa Barbara guy. Um, he was looking to make the to transition from um, working with a corporate office um, to freelancing and was exploring art in a different way. And we had a good conversation over coffee. I told him I had a couple hundred bucks that I basically got from, you know, Christmas money. And, and he was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, so like basically for like less than the price of a surfboard, he did the graphics for us and now he, it's just been amazing to watch him. We're so thankful. It, I mean, it, it's been, it, it's been super stoked on that work. Um, so that brings us to budget. You said you've repeatedly said, you know, we're working on a shoestring budget, but at the same time you are licensing black Sabbath music. Um, can you give me any ballpark for what it costs to make something like this? Because also you spend eight years there's almost no way to justify eight years worth of time uh, on a project unless you're making a significant return on that. Can what does a budget look like for something like this? Oh, uh, it's um, archival f- documentary films are notoriously the most expensive, and um, I didn't really know that setting out on this. Uh, we spent not really including our own time because we haven't paid ourselves anything on this project. We spent, you know a lot more money than I'd really care to discuss. But let's just say that we've, we raised $50,000 on Kickstarter, 47,200 on Kickstarter. And um, that was due to the community support that we were able to generate, which we're super grateful for, because that's what allowed us to, to license um, the visuals, both the photos and the video. And then um, we, put our own money into it. I got to take a pause and just mention that the project really needed a, we, I, it really needed a, a direction and it needed a, 
a, a helping hand stepping up in like 20, 2018, 2017 to 2018. And um, that's when that's when my producer, Justin Mish, came on board. And Justin brought um, an ability to make sure that, you know, we weren't compromising because I got to the point many times where we were so broke and overextended that I was willing to do anything, which basically means sell the film out before it's even finished. And he just said, let's not do that. Let's make sure we own it. Let's make sure we don't, you know, do anything crazy. Like we want to get this thing done and eventually sellable. So, um, we did the Kickstarter. We were able to get a private investor who came on for, you know, um, not an insignificant sum, but a definite chunk of the film. Um, we put our own money into it and then we had a, we had a hole at the end of it. And what we did was we put it on credit cards. So we maxed out two credit cards, maxed them out entirely. And then, um, we were to get a personal, got a personal loan and, um, and essentially let's, I, it, it, it was, it was an investment, right? This was something that we as filmmakers knew we wanted to do and felt that it wouldn't be done unless we were going to continue to charge forward on it. So, um, yeah. One decision that I'd be curious to hear your philosophy behind is it seems like you've been really private about, like I'm talking about all of this surf footage that I've never seen before that's in the film but it seems like you've been pretty private about sharing that footage on social media. And there certainly is a trailer that exists and a couple of clips that are out there, but there's that's 3% of the footage that's in the film. You could certainly increase film sales if you put footage out there for free, which is kind of paradoxical, but what is your philosophy and strategy with not teasing out these clips? Well, I think that it's important that we recognize that this film isn't just uh, the best surfing of 2019 or 2020. Like this is uh, it's a historical document. Um, and so we felt it. it's like, it's, it's going to retain its value and we don't want to, you know, blow it all out too early. Um, we're teasing it out. And basically we have a long-term strategy with how we're going to engage our viewership and, it's, it involves showing the before seen archive, but it also talks, it involves um, the story of how we got the footage and how we, how we remastered it, how we uh, accumulated it. And, and essentially the film itself becoming a vehicle for this whole process, everything we've been talking about. So um, with that being said, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, we, j we, we should be posting more. You know, we, we should, our whole goal is to, is to show it more, uh, is to eventually do a book and, um, to, to make sure that people have access to that stuff. But it was hard because at the very get go, we get a great piece of archive and it'd be like, Oh, awesome. Let's put it online and, and show everybody. But we want to make sure that people have something to watch when they go to the film, because it's such a bummer when you, when you do plunk down and you say, Hey, um, I'm going to watch this film. And then all of a sudden you realize I've already seen it all. You know, that's my, yeah. that's my least favorite thing about trailers nowadays. But the why I think one uh, smart move on your part is just taking frame grabs of the footage, you know? So it, it almost, it is a tease. It's like, Oh, there is footage of whatever, whoever it is. Um, so I'll just watch the film to, 
to actually see it. Yeah, I think I love those those frame grabs too because you can really hone in on the detail. Um, a big thing that we did with this film would was very difficult was um, we remastered a, a whole heck of a lot of it. You know, as we were pulling this footage from Super 8, like, or or 16, or you know, we were basically trying to find the best visual quality we could. And a lot of times, the, the last time any of the stuff was digitized was like, in, you know, 2005 or 2000, you know, the in, and, and the technology has come so far since then, you know, we wanted to show these films in high definition in 2K and in 4K. And that kind of guided the whole spirit of what we were doing so that you do get to the point where you look at, you know, I posted recently, you see Nat Young on a wave at uh, in Crystal Voyager. And, um, you know, that another, you get to, when you get to the best version of that, you can see, oh, Nat's got a mustache and he's got a ding repair on his board. And, you know, you can, and you can see the way that people are moving their feet on their board more different, like differently, you know, and say, oh, here's Sean Thompson in Freeride. He's wearing a watch. And, uh, you know, he, he, you can, you just feel more in it. And that's what makes it such a fun experience. But it's the remastering. Um, what, just side note, what is the process of remastering? I mean, I understand the concept of it, but what's the actual process? So it's a very in-depth process that we had no idea about before we started but then by the time we were done we ended up with a full new company um (sighs) the company is called origins archival um but the process is essentially gathering the best version of the film that you can so that's if in the best case scenario is getting the camera negatives the film that was actually shot that day that's like what bruce brown handed us um with you know the sam miguel role that opens the film up um, those are the best possible negatives to get. But from there, you can get your inner negative, which is a film term for saying the piece that gets you to the part where you can edit. Or you can go from a work print, which is essentially the early version of an editor. You know, they had the film, they would cut it all up from the work print, which is like a copy. Um, and in some cases, we were taking it from release prints, which are the actual reels of film that were shown throughout, you know, a whole tour or whatever and had been seen tens of times, um, maybe on a film tour or something like that. That's, and that was in the case of free ride by Bill Delaney. You, we, we would get the best possible original version that we could get. And then we would scan it to the highest resolution that we could, which is a 4k scan. Um, that's what we can do. And that was something that when we were starting the process, we were frustrated by because everybody kept telling us, Oh, that's super eight or, Oh, that's 16. You don't really need to have that in anything higher than 1080. You can't tell. And we're like, wait, 1080, like that's, that's, that's old. Why not at least 2k? Like, why is it so expensive to get to 4k? Anyway, the process is get the best original, scan it to the highest quality that you can clean it. And then in whatever, and then in some cases do some digital remastering, which includes, um, um, stabilization, flicker reduction, scratch removal, those kinds of things. And then put it into the film and uh you know hopefully it shines like a jewel the cleaning of it and flicker reduction and all that is done on digital software some of it is um cleaning it is actually a physical process i mean we take Uh, these films uh, imagine some of this stuff has been sitting in an attic and in gary for you know 30 40 years um some stuff has been you know collecting dust under someone's bed and they haven't looked at it so it's got mold 
um, it's you know starting to fade because it's been kept in temperature that's too warm, or the film itself actually has a physical lifespan. Um, and that was another element to it was that you know shot in 1960, the physical lifespan of film under the best conditions is 80 years. So we're coming up on the end of that. You know, if especially depending on how it's stored and knowing surfers, a lot of this stuff was kind of just you know <laughs> put wherever they could find space for it. And, uh, and yeah, um, that was, you know, you actually have to clean it with alcohol or acetone or certain, certain cleaners and, and, you know, wipe off the mold when you could. And then yes, when you get as good a condition as you can, then scan it and run the, the softwares that you might, that we have access to, to, um, yeah. Got it. Uh, in terms of distribution, where would you ultimately like to see this film live? Well, the distribution of it is, um, it's another part of independent filmmaking that we didn't realize necessarily going into it, but coming out of it, realizing self-distribution is crucial. Um, owning your own content nowadays is uh, kind of the name of the game. But it's an interesting time because the landscape is shifting so much. Um, eventually, we'd love to see the film on, you know, the widest release possible online. Um, I mean, as, as I basically feel that anybody, if, if anyone could watch the film, then we've done our job. And now anyone could watch it, you know, on iTunes, Google, <laughs> YouTube, or Vimeo. Sorry, I got to plug it. Um, but yeah, Netflix would be great. Amazon Prime would be great. Um, and, you know, we've been reaching out to some of these folks, but um, maybe even Red Bull TV. Who knows? But um, we're happy that right now people, you know, have access to it and, and can see it if they want to. Do you think you'll ever see a return on the investment? Well, we're pretty close to breaking even. Um, so, you know, it's been a year. Well, we, we premiered in February 2019. And, um, we've been online since February, 2020. And, um, you know, we've been selling DVDs. We have them for sale on our website and those have been doing pretty good. Actually, we had a great, uh, relationship with maneuver line in Japan. They, they picked up 1500 DVDs from us. Um, so that made a huge dent in our debts and essentially, yeah, I mean, like I said, this film is not the best surfing of 2019 or 2020. Like this is, um, this is a, a designed to be a document that you could revisit. And you spoke earlier about, you know, the text, like the actual magazines or the, 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 the sheer amount of footage. It's kind of for us, like, it's just nice to know that it's there, but for any crazy super fan, we wanted it to be so where they could pause any single frame and study it. And I really feel like that's what we've done is make something that you can revisit. So, um, I think that these ideas are important. They're crucial to our surfing heritage and they should be revisited. And therefore I, I think that we'll have a very long life and yeah, I think we will to see a return. Good. I'm glad to hear that because I mean, that, that was kind of my original question about budget was more to get to that, which is we want more films. We want better quality films. And if there isn't a sustainable model at this point, Obviously, there is for independent film. Obviously, there, there is for documentary. We're kind of having a heyday of documentary. But this little niche that you're in where it's surf documentary. So the surf audience loves it. But is that enough people to actually make it profitable? Or is the filmmaker kind of talented enough to make it applicable to a broader market that will then help you reach, you know, 
solvency, financial solvency. Well, I think we'll have to we'll have to see. I mean, um, people who don't surf, if they like the film, then um, then that answers that because you know we want people who don't have to be surfers to like it, and so far that's been you know the response. But yeah, I think um, really if there's anything that we learned in the process was in this process was the um, the value of looking at archives. And there are so many archives out there, you know, there's so many classic surf films out there and there are so many outtakes from those surf films that have never been seen before that I hope that people, you know, see the value in that and look to have them read scanned. And, and that was part of the process when making with like this film scanning enterprise that we've come up with is like how we can make a, make a way for other filmmakers to now um, find their own, their own stories that way. And is there, is there a potential for a series of films about board designs and or little surf communities? I, I absolutely think so. I think that this is really a film about mentorship and craftsmanship and place. Um, and those, you know, that trifecta exists in every surfing community, you know. Uh, you said you want to encourage other filmmakers to do it. Are you exhausted at this point? Do you have any ambition to do it again? Oh man. I mean, I couldn't, I, Spoons was the first film I made and the first time I could ever make a film this way. And the only time I could ever make a film this way. I, I knew, I knew while we were making it, this is the only, only shot we had because a lot of the people we were working with are so talented. They're young in their careers. They just want to work on a feature film or something that they were stoked about, but you know, throughout the process of the multi-year thing, like they became too expensive, you know? So it really requires, you know, people who are hungry and um, who can scrape together whatever they can to make something. Um, I would absolutely, I mean, I absolutely intend to keep making surf films, um, but I want to continue to learn as I go through the process. You know, archival surf filmmaking is one thing. I want to try other formats. I'd like to try to do some large format stuff. Um, but then, you know, I think... The other thing about it is it really is just a story, right? It's just a Santa Barbara story. I'd like to see other stories too. I personally, as a filmmaker, want to try to, you know, do things outside of surfing. I'd like to try narrative stuff outside the documentary space. Um, but, you know, there's a long track ahead. So I think as long as we just kind of keep building on what we've done and, and share with other people, you know, whatever insights we can and try to give back wherever we can, um, you know, it'll be good. Is there something that you're currently working on or in pre-production on? Can you talk about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, most, most connected with the spoons project with spoons is morning of the earth, which is a classic surf film from 1972 directed by Albie Falzon. Um, that film we are remastering from the ground up Bolton soup to nuts um, into 4k and that project we've been working on for the past, uh, almost two years now. Um, that's a project that Justin Mish, uh, this producer of spoons is spearheading. And, um, it's, in, I mean, the film looks absolutely stunning. It's, um, it, it's going to be shown in a way that he, people haven't seen since the original movie houses, because, uh, it was never available for video consumption until it came out on DVD um, in the 2000s. And in that in that version, they cut a few things. And the aspect ratios are different. The colors are different. 
So we went back to the original A and B negatives. Like I said, the, the best, the best negatives that we could get. And it's, and then we're going to the original soundtrack um, and, and having that remastered with the original musicians. And then um, we're going to do a similar thing that we're doing with spoons, which is, you know, generate this community around it with a book, with a tour. I mean, the film morning of the earth, it's been called the Australian endless summer, but it's so much different than that. Um, the film is really noteworthy because it's kind of the first example of a film in the modern surf film uh, structure, meaning that there's no narrative, nar there's no narration. It's just music and surfing. But the message in it is very, very clear, which is this message of going back to the earth of community of the beauty of the natural world. And that's a message that we need to revisit now more than ever. So I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited for the work that Justin's been doing on it. And in that remastering project, I'm also, um, we're also making a documentary, a shorter film, not, you know, not a 60 minute piece or anything like that, but a documentary about the film to give new, new viewers a, uh, uh, an understanding about about it, give it some context because, um, you know, that's that's necessary. It's not just for the people who remember it from their youth. It's also for young people to look at and go, oh, I see why this is such an important film and why we should celebrate it. Do you have an expected uh, timeline for that release? Yeah, we're looking to have it done by late 2020. Oh, wow. Okay, awesome. Um, you're talking about investing so much in the remastering process. Is someone's laptop computer or their phone the right place to view all of that hard work? Oh, anybody who wants to see it anywhere, we'd be happy to let to have them see it. Um, but I'd say along with the music, the really the best way to watch it is in the theater. You know, if you can, uh, if you can have that experience, that's really what it's all about in combination with like going with your buddies and having, you know, a couple of beers or whatever, making some noise. Um, if you can, uh, if you can see in a theater or in your home theater, um, you're, you know, you're experiencing it, but Hey, you know, if you like watching things on your phone, then why not, you know, go for it. The, uh, this would be a good time to shout out the Florida surf film festival who yeah, I love those guys. Yeah, not only hosted you guys, uh, but you guys won the award that evening, and that's where I connected with you guys too. So, shout out to those guys. It was a good event. Yeah, they uh, they put on an amazing celebration of surf culture that we were so proud to be a part of. And man, that was a wonderful time. I I can't wait to go back and whatever respect we can get back there. Um, yeah, that was just the best. Yeah, they really are the best. Um, obviously, I will direct people to your website and all of that stuff in post uh, production. But is there anything else that you want to say? Is there anywhere that you would like to direct people to? Is there a best place for them to purchase the film? Um, iTunes, Vimeo, Google Play, or YouTube. Any of those. That'll work great. We actually just dropped it online for rental. And um, if people would like to have a hard copy, we have a DVD that's beautiful. It's got some great information in it. Um, available on our website at spoonsfilm.com. Um, the DVDs are great. And uh, yeah, um, if you check out the Instagram too, at spoons underscore film, um, it's, uh, it's all there. And, and, you know, we manage this whole thing. So if you guys want to reach out, it's easy to find us at those channels too. Awesome. And 
let's uh, follow through and set up a podcast interview with Rennie at some point soon. Oh God, that'd be the best. I mean, it might be, uh, it might be tough uh, to get him to say too much, but once you get him, once you get him going, like he'll, he, you know, he, he's got some great stories and, and um, yeah, that'd be wonderful. I would really love to make that happen. I'll do the drive up there to do it. Okay. Um, I think, I think I, I could soften him up. I should be getting a board from him pretty soon. Um, I got another spoon on the way. I've been waiting until we got to the point where we were at least, yeah, I got a spoon coming. And um, so I'll talk to him about that and hopefully, uh, yeah, that'd be cool. He, he, and even just send him this one maybe he, once we publish it. Oh yeah, it'd be great. You know, it'd be classic to get uh, to get Mark and Drini to go with Rennie because they shape in the same uh, area together. And Mark was kind of, um, he learned a lot from Rennie uh, early on. Yeah. Is Rennie living that far north? He's not in Santa Barbara anymore? Well, no, Mark Mark and Drini grew up in Santa Barbara. Right. So, yeah, Rennie's still in Santa Barbara. Mark is always in Santa Barbara. Uh, oh, okay. He's always delivering boards, and he's always, you know, having lunch with the boys. Got it, got it, got it. Awesome. Well, again, congratulations, you guys, on such a successful film. And um, it's a gift. Thank I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm thrilled to have it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us and also wanted it do one last shout out and say thank you to everyone who made this film possible i mean it's been the trip of a lifetime and it wouldn't be possible without the incredible community support that we had without the individual support of our associate producers guys like roger nance and kim kim robinson and and um you know the the archive providers that were so kind with their footage and their it's just been the the uh, honor of a lifetime and um so proud of the project and happy that you enjoy it and yeah thank you so much for having having me yeah no you guys honored the uh all that archival footage in a really good way and professional way and sentimental too so good job awesome well thanks very right, much thanks, yeah you. you're welcome It goes without saying that I absolutely loved this film and I appreciate its contribution to the canon of surf film and other historical documents that provide backstory and context for our own surf experience. You can find it wherever you rent films for streaming, but I've also posted links to it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Of course, every past episode of Surf Splendor, as well as Spit and The Grit and Scott Bass's The Boardroom Show and Donald Brink's Swell With My Soul, all of the past episodes of everything is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com for free with visuals that accompany every episode. And of course, there's a comment section at the bottom of each page as well. So you can leave a comment for uh, Wyatt or anybody that's ever been featured. And I always make sure to forward those things along. So thanks a lot for that. Um, You can also find, follow, and share our show on Instagram. That is a great way to connect. I try to maintain daily communication there. Growth of this show is important. It ensures that we're able to attract great guests. So if you could just share the show with one friend, that would ensure that we have double the listenership next week. So that would be huge. And Instagram is, of course, a really simple and great way to do that. Just DM the advertisement for this podcast over to them. And again, I will be posting visuals of this film on Instagram for the next few days, the next week to promote this episode. So check all of that out. This week is uh, Independence Day for the United States of America, 4th of July. So Chaz and I will both be out of town at the end of the week. 
Um, so we're going to miss recording an episode of The Grit, but we will reconvene next Friday. But I'll be back on Spit on Tuesday, first of all, with Scott, and then back here for Surf Splendor on Wednesday with an all-new episode. So enjoy the holiday weekend. I will see you on Instagram in the meantime. And that's all I've got for this week. So this is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.